Yeah, I don't know, man. You ever just feel like life is just catapulting towards like, some greater purpose? With bloated ego, we are the only DJ crazy enough to tattoo Jackie Brown on his ass. This is Michael Mann, and I ride with extended clip. Uh, movie about a former, uh, let's say bullpen pitcher who becomes a hitman and he kills people by beaning people with 90 mile per hour fastballs just straight to the dome. Yeah, that is a very good idea for a movie. <laughs> I, I feel you could I, also call it I Hitman. Put my life savings yeah. into that. <laughs> <laughs> like, I like the idea also of him still wearing. I mean, he wouldn't because I feel like it would draw more attention to himself, but still wearing the baseball uniform just like on the top of a building. The criminal organization <laughs> that hired him gave him a uniform oh, that represents yes, their criminal yes, organization. Yes. Like, see, this is this it is almost writes itself. Well, we were talking about how managers should wear the uniform again, and I think it's just like the baseball uniform being kind of tights and a button down white, oft, often white long sleeve, uh, or I guess short sleeve, button down short sleeve is just a very funny fit for anyone to wear, like with a hat. Too, yeah. Because like you're tucking in a button down into pants, but it's a short sleeve button down and you're wearing a cap. And uh, so I just think like off the baseball field, anyone wearing that looks very funny to me. So yeah, I mean like it's kind of the opposite of the killer where you're not really in disguise at all. Like if a guy's walking around the city... <laughs> Also a, a famous uniform. pitcher, probably a famous pitcher too. Yeah, yeah. in his uniform. <laughs> You're describing the uniforms. It's like add like a cape to a baseball uniform. Yeah. That's basically like a 1960s Batman villain costume. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, like it is. A, it is kind of a gaudy or whatever. However you say that word, gaudy, gaudy, gaudy. It's a little more gaudy than we realize. It's a little more gaudy than gaudy, if you know what I mean. <laughs> wow, gaudy. <laughs> Gotti back in the news. Yeah. Gotti's back in the news. And frankly, if his life wasn't so gaudy, I think they wouldn't have got him. Um, but anyway, uh, yeah, I think that making a movie like about a killer athlete, the be- I mean, my mind immediately goes to the beginning of The Last Boy Scout where you see that football player like... Uh, I think he's like taking a reception all the way to the house and he just fucking pulls out a gun and shoots the free safety. (laughs) One of the greatest moments ever. That movie's like good. Like it's okay. But like that scene's like completely next. Like, and I think it opens like that. Yeah. What a great scene. The first scene of the movie, I thought it was going to be the best movie I'd ever seen. Um, But yeah, no, if, if you're doing like a killer guy, I think, yeah, a guy who can fire like a hundred mile an hour fastball, or who can hit with precision, like yeah. Ichiro. You know, like Ichiro could be a contract killer hitting <laughs> fucking like really softly padded balls that are kind of silenced, you know, but he, he can hit it right at your fucking dome probably from 200 feet out. Having someone pitch. <laughs> no, he's doing self soft toss. Just like. <laughs> Just hitting bullets with a baseball bat. I I like how I I just turned 29 and I'm now having the same fantasies I did when I was nine of just like a guy who's so good at baseball he could kill people. That's definitely something I drew when I was like in fourth grade. But kids' movies should be like is what I'm describing right now. Exactly. Stuff like that. Stuff that people drew in like 
little comics that they made for themselves, you know? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, most of those drawings were pretty uh, largely cribbed from stuff I saw in video games and TV. But, you know, the the best artists steal, as, as they all say. It's Extended Clip. It's episode 253. I am one of your hosts, Eddie Averill. I'm Malcolm Baum. I'm JT White. And today it is another edition of the Extended Clip Executive Decision. That is right, ladies and gentlemen, and anyone in between. Uh, If you donate $5 a month to our Patreon, you get an extra episode every week. But if you open up that wallet wide open and you spread another $10 onto that for $15 a month, you not only get these bonus episodes, you get to choose what an episode is going to be about. This one's a main feed episode, too. That's like it's not even hidden behind the paywall. You could be like, hey, I'm so good at listening to podcasts that I've influenced them to do this episode. Check it out. You and know? It's like the holiday season's coming up. Uh, what better gift to give any of your loved ones uh, brother, mother, wife, uh, either you can sign them up for the Patreon, $15 a month, pick their favorite movie, or you just be like, hey, mom, you know your favorite movie, Mysteries of Lisbon? I just paid uh, $15 to have three guys that you've never heard before uh, talk about it for an hour. Isn't that great? Isn't that great? I didn't that's, buy you anything else. True. There's no card. I'm sorry. I can't wrap this. This, the holiday season is coming up. I forgot about that aspect. Yeah, great gift for the loved ones. You know what I mean? Spread the love of movies with Extended Clip. We're always thinking about the loved ones on Extended Clip, whether it's in the context <laughs> of tragedy, comedy, or just pure love. And uh, yeah, I think in, in this case, the tragedy would be not paying $15 a month and buying, uh, whether it's your mommy, your daddy, your son, your daughter, your nephew, uh, your sweetie, your lover, or anyone in between, the executive producer membership. So who did it this time? It was Laura Jacobus, who has her own podcast. That's right. If you do this, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to plug your stuff on the podcast too. Laura Jacobus, who has the podcast that I will link in the description. I'm uh, not sure if it's running anymore. Well, you it may, I mean, but you can re-listen. You can re-listen. Yes, of course, of course. Still some good yeah, work of course. There, yeah, you know. there's one really good episode oh, with yeah. Intolerance. These three goons went on there and somehow <laughs> it worked, but... Um, like if you do a podcast, you don't want people to not listen to it just because no, you don't of course, do it anymore, of course. you know, but just, you know, that's an important note, I guess, yeah. to, you yeah. know, get all the details oh, out there. What else she wants me to promote? I don't know. Anyway, <laughs> this selection, the executive decision is Mysteries of Lisbon. This is a 2010 film by Raul, ooh, by Raul Ruiz. Uh, it is a Portuguese film by the Chilean director. Now, had either of you ever seen anything by Raul Ruiz? Uh, no, I had not. And this feels like a very weird entryway in. Um, actually, funny story. I when downloading this movie, I I got mysteries of lesbians at first and wow. that was also around like six hours a lot to learn there <laughs> was um, that a jess franco film? <laughs> uh something certainly seemed like it from yeah. all the yeah but uh i got to i found six other hours in my week and i watched this one too and uh yeah no it's i i i thought it was pretty great but i'm excited to unpack this because i feel like there is just it's it's a hefty one there's you yeah. you don't get six hours on paper thin material there's a lot of weight here uh, Malcolm, had you seen anything by Ruiz before this? 
No, I, I'd, I'd always wanted to because, I don't know, like, when people, like, share screenshots of his movies, like, the, the, they always look, like, pretty great. And, you know, watching this movie, it's, you know, it's obvious to, you know, it's obvious that he has, like, a great visual talent mm-hmm. and, like, a unique visual talent. So, it's kind of interesting. And this is, like, his last movie, right? Like, he's, like, dies after this is made or one of his last he, movies. He actually does um, have some posthumous work that's still being assembled oh. that he shot. Still? Yeah. Damn. I mean, the man made, still like, a hundred fucking movies. He was going he at a crazy clip. He has over a hundred titles to his name. And, yeah, if, if I may quote here from... Th- this is, like, from a best of the decade entry about Mysteries of Lisbon, but about Raul Ruiz in general... Uh, you know, you could. This is by uh, Evan Morgan. It says Raúl Ruiz could claim familiarity with dozens of genre, proficiency in multiple languages, and over a hundred directorial credits, but not one which might stand incontestably as his opus. Blah blah blah. But basically, what the very good uh, capsule about uh, Ruiz's Mysteries of Lisbon in the in review online best of the decade list gets at is that he's not someone you can pin down. So maybe this guy with a hundred films that span the globe and span genres and span stylistic preoccupations, maybe the five hour mini series, uh, you know, for Portuguese TV and also cut into a four hour movie is the best part and maybe the one of the 80s art house movies that was more of a hit back then and hit as relative as you can use that term yeah but i i don't think there's any right or wrong starting points for the few that i've seen from ruiz i mean uh city of pirates you know aesthetically is a bit different than this and you know just generally the the storytelling approach is different than this but it's clearly two by the same guy who's just about covered as much territory as any director seemingly has. Uh, and I'm still, you know, completely blind on him, too. That's the thing. You watch a few movies and you know that there's still a world out there for you to explore. But the world of those movies that we have seen now, pretty, pretty crazy. Mm-hmm. Some wacky shit certainly oh. happens in this movie. <laughs> there is absolutely some wacky shit going on in this movie. So did you guys watch it as the one long thing or the miniseries cut? I did the miniseries cut. I Yeah, I kind of, I have to, I have a confession here. I might be guilty. Yeah. I watched it on Tubi, actually. I watched this movie, which amazing that, you know, I feel like I was an early Tubi guy and I haven't, I haven't really checked in. They got Mysteries of Lisbon on there. God damn. Um, but, uh. So yeah, and I, that one you guys keep saying six hour movie that cut is like four and a half well, hours. I think six so that's is the too long. Six is not what it actually is, but the mini series oh. cut is it's six, six like fifty five minute episodes, and they're fifty five minutes, but with but like credits, credits yeah. and it probably does end up being about the same runtime. But Malcolm, you watched the one that's all in one go. Yeah, I watched the the movie cut. I guess. Apparently. Oh, because you like movies, not. But TV. I mean, you still get yeah. TV, you ad breaks with Tubi, so you get the TV experience. Well, or no, not if you got if you got ad block. Oh, those, fair. Those get I mean, blocked out. Uh, on the TV. Well, when I I went HDMI. Oh, okay. To laptop. Okay. With this is the important info in mind. for the pirates out there, because yeah. Raul Ruiz is a pirate above all, a smuggler. That's uh, part of yeah. the the essay that uh, Evan Morgan was uh, that I was reading from by Evan Morgan, and I think piracy is a big thing here because it's like these are not films that are generally accessible to the U.S. Like. 
find a legal way to watch City of Pirates and I'll give you a hundred dollars. Uh, like it just doesn't happen, you know. And mm-hmm. so I, I think that like going outside of your comfort zone and often watching them on bootleg sites or on Tubi now, which is insane to me. Uh, <laughs> but like you know the the Rapid Gator five part downloads where you have to wait for the timer and all that bullshit. Like it, it's only fitting that this guy who basically globe trotted for 60 years almost stealing financing uh to make these crazy movies that are not financially viable whatsoever uh it's only fitting that piracy is kind of the only way to attain most of those movies uh mysteries of lisbon it did get a uh, physical release in the u.s via music box uh like i think that's a cinema in seattle or chicago or i think it's chicago yeah that does releasing mm-hmm. as well so good on good on them for getting this one out there but so this is a 2010 film slash series that kind of transcends uh and transports you all across time uh throughout europe in would it be the late 18th into the early 19th century yeah i believe that's the time frame and so we see you know a a boy with no name as it were uh or just joao and we also see father denis denis you know what's great about watching this on tubi like right as it ended there was another mini series called like the secrets of father denis and i'm like oh shit there's more there's more uh, mysteries of lisbon there's a mystery of lisbon stew basically so that's cool that that's out there the Denis. enigma oh, one of the episodes uh, or parts is called the enigma of father denis and that's just the enigma of father denis is one of the greatest titles you could possibly have <laughs> dennis gets a lot of play in this movie you he's know he's kind I mean? of the main character i mean it's centered yeah. around joao as like the boy with no name and then it wraps back around to him by the end but it's really father dennis is like the key to exploring the mysteries as it were uh the movie is all about people telling each other stories basically and flashing mm-hmm. back within flashbacks and there's like journal entries and it, it's all of these narratives woven within one another and it just as i said transports you from one nation to the next with endless visual creativity i mean the amount of insane split diopter setups just in one episode alone is enough to you know make brian de palma cancel his viagra membership there's the one split (laughs) diopter that is so crazy where it's just like the the part that's like blurred is like obscuring like a person a, character, a character's yes. face oh, so that was beautiful yeah what we're referring to there's a shot with three major characters on screen within the scene and yeah it's this typical split diopter where one is in close up and one is like a medium shot but then there's a character standing in between them whose face is just completely blurred but blurred in two different distinct ways and there's all this visual invention that just never stops i feel like uh, Ruiz's camera movement is often very evocative of like a dream mindset. Yeah. Uh, it reminds me of Jacques Rivette a lot, the way he moves the camera. It reminds mm-hmm. me of like Celine and Julie go boating. But yeah, this one, like, I don't know. There, there's something about the historical setting that is almost a deterrent for me at first. Absolutely. And it is always a detaching factor. It draws me in the deeper it goes into the flashbacks and dreams and stuff because. I don't know. I have a hard time grasping on 
to just the surface level, like historical drama, uh, European dramas of this era. But then when you just like open it as a treasure trove, almost like the way that Ruiz does here, it's just so fascinating, even if I can barely even keep up. Like, I got to be honest, there are at least there's at least two and a half hours of this experience where I'm very <laughs> unsure of a lot yeah, of things. Yeah, absolutely. Like, yeah. That's fine. Who's I that? Who's that character again? Mm. It's well, like, it's oh, it's the every, priest's friend. Everyone yeah. has like a fake identity. <laughs> too. Everyone has yeah. alter egos. People reappear within these flashbacks and dreams as other characters. Uh, there's all this interesting stuff. Uh, Leia Sedu pops up, and I'm yeah. like, did I actually fall asleep? Like, what's <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but I, I just love, as I said, the endless style, especially for of its time. It's it's 2010. It's made for Portuguese TV, I guess. Uh, and it has a contemporary streaming series look to it, honestly. The, uh, the sheen, as it were, is a modern digital look. But Ruiz uses the almost unreality of that look uh, for so much, uh, just like, as I said, dreamlike atmosphere. And especially through the camera movement and... I don't know. I don't love the two to one aspect ratio frame, but he's always finding fun ways to play with it in this. Yeah, no, obviously the, the film is very like literary just from the nature of like having like this all encompassing story that just follows every character down a bunch of different rabbit holes. And again, I'm also a period piece averse like you, Eddie, like that's like a lot of periods I love, but yeah, there's a lot of stuff like 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 this, this, like general era is a little bit, uh, boring on, on like first glance to me, but it's like, I don't know, something like this, it is like cracking open like a classic book where it's just like you uh, it may not be interested in the time period or whatnot, but once you get in and start exploring all the crevices here, uh, I don't know, I feel like there's a lot to be entertained by, a lot of very exciting things. And again, just the formal style in and of itself, I feel like really reflects that kind of literary quality like when the camera particularly like glides around and especially like uh gliding like through a room like past like walls and doors and things like that it just like feels like reading a book where you're just seamlessly flowing from one scene to the next Uh, yeah you know it's interesting you guys bring up kind of like the setting and kind of like yeah like this 18th century you know, bourgeoisie, nice houses, you know, type set it. Cause it is, it's something that like I could kind of feel distance from at first too. And I feel like as, you know, the, the movie progresses, I feel like it's almost kind of intentional, this kind of older setting and kind of like, I don't know, just like these endless, uh, kind of layers of like stories and like a person's personal history, uh, being you know applied and kind of like how you deal with connecting those dots i feel like this setting i don't know it just it works with kind of what ruiz is trying to do and kind of like um i don't know because you do kind of feel distance as for at first but i think you know it's kind of uh like there's so many stories that you're like it's less kind of being enraptured by um you know, the verve of these stories and like what happens. I, I, I mean, even like towards the end, I think there's like some sort of line where he's like, oh yeah, this is like kind of, you know, it was all a lot of like bourgeoisie, uh, bourgeoisie like yeah. nonsense, like a lot of people cheating on each other, wanting to sleep with each other or whatever. But it's, it all adds up to kind of like 
miasma of sickness of trying to connect to it all. And I feel like the distance of the setting kind of makes you look back and kind of assess it from like, you know, a fictional storytelling standpoint, because like this movie is like about storytelling ultimately. Yeah. I mean, it uses this like marionette diorama type thing as almost a portal into other realities or other stories. And uh, I really like that motif. And also it uses like a a tile mosaic thing for the uh, intro titles for the episodes. And uh, all of them are just, there's so many symbolic pieces of this film that feel like it's all about um i don't know putting things together like a puzzle but that you're never going to actually solve you know there, it's yeah. a puzzle that's always going to have a hundred extra pieces in the bag because history and stories are so strange and have this weird ebb and flow and surrealist quality where you know the, i don't know you're just going to stories within stories within stories it's like uh it's going to get less and less realistic as you go and more and more just expressionistic and the 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 camera angles get more and more crazy and kooked out and the the editing gets crazier and i feel like every 30 minutes there's some sort of new form of visual invention uh before it finally goes back to more of a classical style toward the very end and it's just like such a tour de force uh stylistically yeah absolutely i feel like with in terms of that narrative there and the the distance we were kind of talking about um in like a conventional uh like narrative film i feel like there's this whole thing of like you you obviously want like a very defined character but i love this defying expectation here where there's just so many like and i feel like it's more like true to life like what it's evoking where it's just like every character's identity is so fractured in different layers and you're like understanding like and learning different things about it that call into question or characters will come back and be like in entirely different circumstances and almost entirely different people and that's why i don't know i just love that the film closes back to like this uh, like weird like obscured like i don't know how would you describe that like sort of oh, like the very ending the very shot, ending yeah. shot like wispy sort of like fever dream yeah, of it, like when he saw his mom for the first time and it's just so much has happened in between then to like re like reevaluate and change like what you initially think of these characters it's funny that i said it goes back to more of a classical style toward the end there is there's a lot of yeah. like master shot like a uh, drawing room intrigue stuff that reminds you of the kind of live painting feeling of the beginning of the movie but then yeah it just gets you with that last shot that's like a minute and a half of seemingly uh an anamorphic lens that's like way more orbular than it should be like uh, the way everything is just gliding across frame in different ways is just so surreal and strange and uh just the perfect counter to yeah the the bigger more empty drawing uh drawing room type of shots from throughout the movie um there's also so many interesting points of view and like kind of vague statements about art itself like uh, early on you see Joao get that portrait of himself and he's like what is this a horse and it's kind of a funny uh, absurdist line but you know the the implication there is that he doesn't see himself through representation and then you know an hour and a half later we see him looking at these paintings where you see a clearly objective shot of him looking at paintings but then you get his point of view and the paintings are all blurry 
but then you seemingly use those blurry paintings as another entryway to another flashback, another story within a story, whatever. Uh, and it's just like, I'm not really sure exactly what it's even telling you, uh, but mm-hmm. it's, you know, the Mysteries of Lisbon is an appropriate title because it just begs so many questions about history, storytelling, art, etc. And I, I just love it for that because I could see myself going back to it, not right away, but like in five years, <laughs> I could see myself going back to Mysteries of Lisbon and just cracking it open again and giving it another whirl because the mysteries are still there, you know? Yeah, exactly. And even if like uh, Ruiz has like such a weighty catalog where I feel like it might be hard to define like aesthetic consistencies or things like that, it seems like um, the core of what he's getting at with like identity storytelling, it seems like that is certainly something that he would mm-hmm. tackle throughout yeah. his work and getting more under my belt and being able to return to this then knowing, cause I imagine like towards the tail end of his, his life as he's making this, he knows this is going to be one of his final projects. And yeah. I do want to return to it a little bit later for that reason. And again, just the, there's just so much here. You can't like mm-hmm. just watch it and feel like you've mastered it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like kind of what we were talking about, like with the all the point of views, of this movie, I think is what makes it kind of interesting and kind of maintains its kind of like, um, focus on like history and storytelling because like the way the movie kind of begins, like, you know, we're with Joao and he's like figuring out like who his parents are. Right. And like the movie kind of has like this youthful point of view of kind of like these mysteries. We don't know the weight of these mysteries yet. You know what I mean? As we, uh, learn later in the movie, you know, we know he's kind of like unsatisfied, right. With his life as an orphan. And he's trying to find meaning through his past and Joao, the character, you know, it's, we don't really like all he does is kind of, you know, examine his past or, you know, that's all we see him do. I I guess he does some poetry. He does try to, um, you know, Mac on that girl towards the the end. And there's a little bit of a a hitman situation type so he does, he does get up to some things, but, you know, obviously everything is triggered by him trying to figure out his history and trying to make sense of it all because of the life of an orphan, you know, being bullied. He wasn't so satisfied with that. And then, you know, the movie kind of gets handed off to Father Dinas and, he, you know, it, 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 and there's just, you know, a treasure trove of like what a life Dinas has lived, you know, a man of many different lives and, you know, his life connects to Joao in like many different ways. And, and then ultimately the movie kind of seems like with Joao kind of results in just being crushed by all of this crushed by, uh, all of the interconnectedness and like, um, almost like kind of like, cause it's like the way that Dinas and Joao are interconnected is crazy. There's like three or four different ways in which, uh, they're connected. And like, it's kind of funny. Like, I feel like, uh, Joao's just like kind of, he's overwhelmed by kind of almost like the, the fictional nature of, of his past. You yeah. know what I mean? And he just can't 
handle it and he just fucking dies <laughs> i mean from the very beginning he yeah, talks about yeah. like uh as he, him in orphan mode is him being like i only have one name like every all these other boys have like just mm-hmm. a billion surnames and things like that and just like him sort of peeling away at his identity is uh i don't know i i think that's a good lead in there well i think the the identity thing is crucial to the scene early on with the paintings because yeah that is when he's you know it's within an hour of him talking about how all the other boys have a last name except him and then he's forging his own identity through the history of art by being at a museum you know Mm -hmm. uh and it it, it is kind of a really powerful idea when you think about it it's like that's kind of what we do uh on a much smaller scale but when i'm firing up whether it's uh you know uh, the inner scar by garel or grown-ups 2 by dennis dugan uh, you know, I'm Dean is Dugan. Dean is du- Father <laughs> Dean is Dugan. Uh, I, much like him, I'm forging my own identity through the art that I'm taking in because my own identity is, you know, within uh, the arts. It's uh, someone who watches movies and enjoys, uh, you know, yeah, no. art and all things. And I mean, I think the, Ruiz does an amazing job of translating that idea visually throughout the film, just how much like portraiture plays into it. There's one shot, I think it's like of like some characters talking like in a mirror on the wall in between some like Mm -hmm. paintings and things like that sort of getting at this idea of like the intermingling of like fiction art and identity where like there's a mirror on the wall next to a painting and so the the objective kind of shot on the wall kind of puts the person in the painting in conversation yeah there's a lot of style like that i mean there's a lot of just as we said split diopter type stuff there's one setup toward the end at a party where I don't even think it is split diopter. It's just, it gives the illusion because you're so used to those two points of focal length uh, that you have two guys in close up on each end of the screen. And then there's all this, you know, almost negative space in the middle and it's all these people in the background out of focus. And uh, I don't know, just the way he uses that after using a De Palma-esque split diopter for most of the movie is such a good little like juke at the end of just like showing off like look you've been watching for four and a half hours you think you figured out my stylistic rhythms you have oh. you never will yeah Rui, Rui's like I mean watching this movie like it's very impressive on like a narrative fiction level but obviously I feel like his his biggest strength is just in is his bag of tricks man like the the way he shoots everything I don't know, and it never feels like gimmicky or like show-offy. You know what I mean? At least to me, like I don't know. Like Ruiz just really finds a different angle, kind of for each scene. There's like, like if we really wanted to, we could like probably do ranking the top 100 shots in uh, Mysteries of Lisbon. Like there's literally a hundred shots in this movie worth talking about and discussing, and how it plays with like character interplay and like the dynamics to, between the person in the scene and how Ruiz like will visually show that. Like, I'm just thinking of a random scene where like, um, I forget even who's talking to each other. It's a man and a lady. And like, uh, Ruiz just goes really low with the camera. And like the woman is framed by the table that mm. the, the camera's near. And it's just, I don't know, like Ruiz. Yeah. Ruiz has like an infinite bag of trip. You know, if we're talking like NBA score, like he could yeah. score, he could get to the bucket any way he's like Wembenyama or something like that like he's got there's literally no way he can't score a bucket he's, yeah. he's gonna get his shots off 
Um, yeah, no, I mean, getting the shots off is the perfect way to put yeah. it. I'm thinking right now, all the setups at that covenant are insane. Like the the two sisters with the uh, framed in front of that window, and you get so much negative space on the left and right side. But then he cuts into a close up where it's all just the light between them, and for some reason they're like signing in handling. Hand language, uh, si- using sign language, using hand gestures as they talk, and the way the light reflects that is just so incredible. And then two scenes later, you get the nun, you know, washing her hands off of uh, like the blood off of her hands, and you have that bucket of red blood with her hands in the reflection, and just that being the inverse of the sun peering through the window is such an, a beautiful imagistic rhyme and Ruiz is just full of stuff like that. You could, you could watch this movie and genuinely have no idea what's going on. Like I got a lot out of it narratively, but if you want to just like fucking listen to a podcast and watch this movie for four hours, like you'll have a, it's like, uh, I wanted to go to a museum today. Wanted to go look at some paintings today, but I, I'm too tired. I'm sleepy. I'm gonna put on Mysteries of Lisbon <laughs> and just crank some podcasts and just look at the visual splendor. You could honestly get away with that, like if you're really a visual splendor kind of person. Yeah, no, I think there is what we were talking about with detachment and things. Uh, just how I feel like calling a film like surface level uh, to some extent is something is negative, and I mean obviously. Uh, Ruiz is probing at a lot of deeper things here, but like narratively, like th- there is a lot of stuff again that's just surface level bourgeois problems that you don't need. Like he, it's very clear he's aware you don't need to grasp the full mechanics of this to get enjoyment out of it. And yeah, I don't know. It's it's a long fucking movie, but there's no I don't know. There's no real like zone out or boredom, even when I'm just like. What what's going on here exactly? Who are these guys? Yeah. It's every composition is just so beautiful and impressive that like you can figure out relationships and like what he's getting at through that alone. Where I do agree. Turn pause pause the volume for a second. Put on some music. Put on a podcast. Uh, whatever you want. It. Uh, I don't know. I think that can just re- like I don't know. Probably the film's greatest strength. Yeah, you were talking about, like, how, like, certain aspects of this movie, like, if you view them in, like, the least charitable way possible or whatever. Or, well, not even that. It's, like, he's playing with these things. Like, it's almost, like, there's almost maybe, like, a little soap opera-ish feel to, like, what's going on, you know, the stories and whatnot. And, um, you know, but I think what obviously separates him from, you know, know, something you'd see on daytime television, there's a lot of things. But, like, just the way he, like, delivers information – and his deliberateness, you know, which makes, you know, this movie so long. But I'm just thinking of, like, towards the end of the movie where we have Joao and he's kind of in that situation where he's pursuing that older woman, that uh, old knife eater uh, had a little little uh, foray with back in the day. And, like, it's when Joao's, like, meeting with knife eater, like, tell me, that like, what happened? And then, like, I don't know, it's just funny that, like, Raul Ruiz just takes ten minutes to describe being, like, yeah, I paid her to have sex with me. You know what I mean? It goes through, like, like something that could be delivered in like a three second line, but Ruiz, you know, we're doing, we love a flashback, right? So we get another flashback of like 10 minutes of like, of the certain emotions that were felt and kind of like, you know, certain gestures that went on that would give, you know, more, you could attach more meaning to it rather than, you know, someone just telling you like, 
I paid to have sex with her. But Ruiz really, I don't know, examines the dynamics there and how it affects the present time. And yeah, just I, I love how everything's being revealed to one another. And uh, um, Ruiz, when that information is revealed, Ruiz, you know, makes sure to to draw it out in a way where we feel the importance of it now in the present. Um, yeah, I also think that weirdly for a film that goes so deep into its own flashbacks and is such narrative convolution, I feel like it has a weird quality to it that I described. I tried describing before the, the dreamlike quality of going to, you know, a story within a story, almost like the dream within a dream type thing. Um, I feel like the further you get into the convolution, the more it makes sense on a kind of elemental level. Like you get to the bottom of it and it's just whether it's about a boy or a man, uh, it's it, it really is just a, a young boy's adventure movie. <laughs> like, uh, And mm-hmm. I, I just feel like all of the pieces that are there are so informed by history itself. And obviously this is an adaptation, but Ruiz's own... Uh, kind of investment in art history and a life in the arts and a life in storytelling that I don't know there's a weird quality where there were certain convoluted narrative beats that I didn't understand but kind of came around on on a deeper aesthetic level like the aesthetic unity of it all kind of tied together the loose ends that I didn't understand and also the aesthetic presentation leans into the mystery so much it's this weird kind of um I don't know. I don't want to use the word dialectic because it's not too productive here, but uh, this weird dynamic between the uh, kind of accurate, like a uh, period recreation and everything, but also the digital cinematography yeah. and the style that is so different than from what you associate with films about, you know, uh, classical type narratives. And I don't know there that retro future kind of dynamic there uh it makes it so much more interesting and playful but in a way that's not so in your face like uh the favorite for example where it's yeah. like oh the face so we're gonna do like a victorian story but like these these broads are gonna be fingering each other you know like uh maybe there's a little maybe there's a little uh finger juice in this one but like it's not uh it's the the sexuality and the uh the the kind of sleazier elements of this feel so lived in to the point where it's like, oh, yeah, they were kind of freaky back then, but it's not in the way where it's, you know, uh, uh, not exactly your father's uh, old yeah, European yeah, story. Yeah, no, you know? I definitely, I, I like you describing it as playful because, again, you get the assignment of, like, either four and a half or, like, five, six-hour art house film, and you're thinking uh, something more along the lines of, like, Satan's Tango, something that's going to be, like, dry and, like, intense. And yeah, I don't know this. It's confusing at points and and very odd. But I do think just through form and storytelling, like it is this playful quality to it where it's just, yeah, I was never like, again, never zoned out. I would say Satan Tango I mean, has a slight playful quality. There's yeah, that one yeah. scene where he's trying to kiss the cat, right? That's what he's trying to do. Yeah, I mean, but <laughs> relatively <I'm joking>. more. <laughs> <laughs> See where a, Anyone a boy strangles a cat. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that was that was for the real Satan Tango heads out there only. Um, 
So as we wrap up here, I think we're all big fans of this one. I don't think it's like one of my favorite of all time or anything like that. But I, I just think that as an aesthetic treasure trove, as a self self statement, self referendum on storytelling and art across all forms and art history, it's just such a valuable text and an aesthetic and narrative goldmine. And I'm going, I'm going with a strong and steady four bullets on this one for my old buddy, uh, Raul Ruiz. What about you, Ricky? I'm going four bullets as well. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I've said my piece on this one. Yeah, I, I mean, I think we're all going to go four bullets here. I, I just say, like, kind of like, yeah, this is just really... It is like uh, it's impressive and it's massive and it's it's kind of a uh, it's 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 hard to completely comprehend but it's also kind of like about that how you can't do that like you know what I mean there's so many dots you can't really connect them all and uh it's just uh yeah I don't know just the visual uh splendor that goes on here and kind of just uh his constant inventiveness is just really I don't know it's kind of it's kind of unmatched you know what I mean cuz like um, you feel you you've, with directors and style, it's kind of like, I don't know. It's, I mean, in the most literal way, you kind of like boil it down. Like, Oh, Spike Lee does like the reverse dolly shot. And that's like one of his things. But with the Ruiz, it's kind of like, um, just, it's kind of more like the, the tricks are there, but it's kind of just like, kind of like this POV, uh, almost first person dreamlike that he takes that, um, I don't know. I'm excited to see his other movies because, like, reading the descriptions of his other movies, um, it seems like they're, you know, even if there are other genres, it seems like they're very similar in that it's all about kind of, like, narrative interplay and kind of, like, um, you know, uh, unconventional telling of stories and stuff like that. And I don't know. It is a... He seems, he seems like a very valuable resource, someone I need to get more into. You know, maybe you could help expand the way I think about things. So, yeah, I'm excited. That was the extended clip executive decision. Uh, thank you once again for donating at the $15 level. We have two more coming up. Uh, the next one from a uh, donor named Cameron is going to be on Fritz Lang's House by the River. Oh, nice. I've seen that before. Yeah, yeah. No, we're yeah. going to come guns a blazing. I might watch it twice, and it still won't Ooh. be as long as Mysteries of Lisbon. True. <laughs> <laughs> sure, Laura Jacobus always has us do the homework. Yeah, I know. Right? <laughs> yeah, no. Intolerance uh, in this one. House by the River, snappy 88 minutes. You know, uh, everyone, nobody has to do their homework on that one too much, and it's for slang. That'll be awesome. Not that this wasn't, though. This was an incredible, like, this is going to stick with me for a long time. But I'm just saying, executive decision, $15 a month, you can do it. And help the podcast, too. Help us out here. Uh, we'll be right back on Extended Clip. Adjust the collar or something. Not that you know. Yeah, we're gonna need wardrobe in here for a touch up. <laughs> Eddie, go into his trailer for five, real quick. Oh, five, they call it. We'll see about that. <laughs> I'm doing the Chandler special in there. It's gonna be the a Chandler minute. <laughs> Could I be any more on cocaine? Mm. <laughs>
Oh, I was going to say, what is that? Heroin suicide? What is, what's the Chandler? <laughs> oh, I meant when he was flying high, you know? Yeah. I, I remember that story of uh, Paul Schrader on the first day of Cat Person just locking himself in his trailer and smoking too much weed and refusing to direct the movie on his first day. Oh, that's, yeah. That's a pretty funny move. Cat People? Cat People? Cat Person? I don't know. What is it? It's Cat, cat People. Me? Me and JT saw that together, yeah, actually. No. It was a, quite a sensual experience. Pa- Cat People <laughs> is the Paul Schrader remake of the Val Luton uh, Jacques Turner movie. Cat Person is the like op-ed that got oh, yeah. adapted into a movie. <laughs> I forgot that Cat Person is another Paul property, so cat I don't want to... <laughs> I mean, not a bad candidate. Yeah, I, no. For, I didn't even read the story, but just... Just the picture that you see with that story of like the guy, like a guy with a mustache kissing a woman, you know what I mean, or something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, it's really erotic. Um, anyway, so <laughs> I, I saw like a trailer for that, and I don't know. It's uh, what's his name? The, the the cousin Greg guy from Succession. It's really funny that oh. you know he's kind of doing like a meta thing. Like I feel like I I can feel a Shia LaBeouf esque uh, downfall for him coming. You know. Uh, yeah. Because he kind of plays himself a little bit in the show and like plays up that aspect of his personality uh, from what I've seen in the press and whatnot and like his whole you know reputation online and stuff like that. Uh, I just I just feel like the guy <laughs> you know the, the him leaning into it to like being the cat person or whatever mm-hmm. for that movie is almost a bit too much and yeah you know well, uh, let's just say I hope the four channers don't get in his head. With with the with him, it's like LaBeouf was like beloved by people, and it's like I'm sure people like Cousin Greg, but it's like he's just playing like like LaBeouf's personality. I don't know. It was he he definitely leaned into it, but it's like him. It's like all he's got is that he has accusations on him, right? That's the only thing I know about him, right? Or is he is I mean well, I guess could be I don't, worse I don't, than I don't, that. It could be worse, no, but what it's could just be like worse than that. <laughs> but I know, of course, but it's just like I don't know. It's like. Like, I feel like to pull that off, like, you have to have, like, five things happen to you. Like, five news stories, not not just one. I don't know. Maybe I'm... But Shia LaBeouf maybe I'm didn't misreading. even do that much. Like, obviously, the stuff came out recently. I'm talking, like, yeah. 2016 era Shia LaBeouf. Like, when 4chan's yeah, was- fucking with him and there's, like, the art display gone wrong and everything. That kind of Shia LaBeouf downfall is what I envisioned for him. I totally. don't see. I don't see the thing where he's, like killing dogs or whatever oh, was Nicholas Braun <laughs> yeah, the yeah, succession yeah, yeah. guy you think he's gonna have he's just gonna go too artist with it well I think it, it's gonna be something like that. like okay. I don't know if it's like artist artist or if he's gonna get into like improv comedy okay. or like being yeah. a restaurateur or something like that but it's it's gonna be yeah. something like that where he's he's, I, just, he's playing with fire that's that's my prediction I'm just getting it on the record <laughs> Yeah, no, no, I think it's a good prediction. Head clip to bring up in five years. <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, I guess the point I was trying to make is that, like, like you said, like LeBeouf had all like those artistic stunts or whatever. Yeah. It's like Bront doesn't have artistic stunts. He's only just been accused of something. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> like, like, like LeBeouf got famous off of doing like the weird like like uh, apology that he copied, like weird yeah. shit like that. It's like Bron just got got accused. Well, it's I know that's just step one though. That's just step one. Yeah. Then he's gonna get he's gonna get goofy with it. He's gonna get goofy. I well, like LeBuff as like a LeBron type nickname, you know, like Shia Le LeBuff, <laughs> Le Shia LeBuff. 
Lashaya couldn't do a single thing without getting an accusation. <laughs> Dude's a phony. <laughs> you were, there was a period where people were like, he is like a really good artist, though, and like an actor. He's a really That's good actor. So he's like a real artist, too. Like He's like never been in like one good movie. Like you look at his filmography, there's not even like one good movie he's been in. I can't, I can't. He's not, he's in the only bad Abel Ferrara movie of the last 10 years. Oh yeah, I forgot Pio. Padre Pio is probably the only Abel Ferrara movie that I think is straight up bad. Like I don't really like Siberia that much, but I respect it a lot as like a weird rabbit hole movie kind of. Uh, mm-hmm. But I, I thought Padre Pio was a stinker. And what else did he do? The the movie with uh, his bro, like he has like a disabled friend. Peanut Butter Falcon. Out. Peanut yeah. Butter Falcon. You can't be <laughs> naming your no. movie Peanut Butter Falcon if you're like helping out a disabled kid in the movie. Is it like That's a Peanut just... Butter Dog situation? Is that like the innuendo <laughs> of the trailer? Like you, you I can't imagine that would work out as well with the Falcon's beak, but. <laughs> <laughs> Is on you. Yeah. <laughs> no, I, I would really like that. 2002 <laughs> Fairly Brothers, 20th Century Fox, <laughs> The Peanut Butter Falcon. <laughs> <laughs> you just get like Matt Dillon smearing yeah. peanut butter on his junk, and you just see like his buddy, like a Jeffrey yeah, Tambor's I work with like Falcons. A, yeah. <laughs> Jeffrey Tambor's a falconer. And he's like. <laughs> I think the LaBeouf nostalgia, the, when people said LaBeouf was a good actor, I think they're literally thinking about Holes. It's just, like, just Holes watching in the Holes. Disney Holes. show. Even Stevens, yeah. yeah. Yeah, they're like, damn, Holes was a pretty sick movie when I was 10. Shia LaBeouf, he's actually, Honey Boy, that, that's a, he's actually artistic. Like, not only he's artistic as was fuck. he there when I was a kid, but he's an artist, too. So that's, he also did, um, what's that movie, American Beauty? American Honey. Right? Is oh, that yeah. oh yeah, I never yeah, saw that. that. Oh, never saw that. that is one of my least favorite movies of the 2010s. Like, genuinely, yeah. one of the biggest pieces of shit ever. Like, I, I feel like he could have been in a good movie if like Harmony Corinne put him in one, maybe. Because that's totally, what he yeah. was giving off. That's the energy he was giving off in that movie. It was like Harmony Corinne put me in a movie, make me James Franco in Spring Breakers, <laughs> you know? But it doesn't work like that when it's him just like in a van full of, you know, fat white teenagers vaping and saying the N-word to rap music, which I guess is like the point of that movie. I don't know. I kind of, I kind of, I know that movie's bad. I kind of wish I saw it when it came out just because I think it's like a funny cultural reference. Like, yeah. Oh, I saw obviously it at not, a special screening anymore. at the Landmark where like the director and Ooh. star were there for a QA. and a I straight up walked out before the Q&A started because I, was like, <laughs> I hated this movie so much that I cannot sit through people jerking it off. Uh, because everyone was in awe the entire time. And I walk out and I went with my friend Roger and I, I he stayed for the Q&A. And I had to wait in the lobby for like uh, fucking 45 damn. minutes like a fool. That's defiant. You you went defiant. Like not only, I, I'm not listening to the Q&A, but I'm staying here. So yeah. I, I, I just can't be a part. But I, in a way, I, I respect it because those Q&As are rarely... The only good Q&A that I've been a part of was like the Farrelly Brothers one because mm-hmm. no one was like pretentious about it you know what i mean it was kind of just nice good vibes you know just more celebratory i guess exactly i mean ducking out of a q a and having the director see you duck out is like one of the most (laughs) shameful things ever but i also feel like they must get it right because they probably hate doing these q a's as much as we hate watching them i feel like i've brought this up a million times on the podcast in the last uh like month 
but when I saw Joanna Arnau when I was leaving the Q&A and I was just like Philly's jersey, we shared a look <laughs> and let before but I should have said something, but it was just like she she knew like the Q&A. I imagine you, you hate the Q&A. Have you introduced yourself to, to her No, before? no. As I just bolted, I was leaving. just bolting out of the movie. Uh, in uh, but I was used to watch baseball. I clearly I was a man on a mission. There's two <laughs> levels to it. There's a director I respect watching me walk out of their Q and A or their movie or something, and that that's rough. But especially if it's a director, I'm like trying to get on the podcast. You know, like yeah, I, no, uh, has yeah. that happened? Uh, maybe. <laughs> well, like, look, if I'm gonna interview Whit Stillman, I'm not gonna watch a Q and A with him. You know, uh, like True. a week okay. before. Yeah. It was at yeah. a, it was at a Q and A, and so the movie ended, and I walked out, and uh, he def he saw me walk out, and you know, I don't I think he respected me for that. Maybe like a smaller scale director, maybe it's more impactful, but what's what's must have been doing those Q and A's for Q&A's a while. Q and A suck it's, dick. Yeah, there is yeah, never a good Q and A. Like it's just it's, like yeah, torture. The the worst though was it wasn't even a Q and A. Uh, Paul Thomas Anderson was doing the intro for Stop Making Sense at the Arrow like five years ago, maybe. And it was when he had first directed those Hyam videos. Um, <laughs> oh boy! Uh, yeah, yeah. So he did like an intro for Stop Making Sense. It was awesome. And you know, I love Paul Thomas Anderson, one of my favorite filmmakers of all time. And then he's like, "Well, before the movie starts, we're going to run these uh, videos by Haim. I love this band. They're from the Valley. They're girls. I love them. And I'm going to put one of them in a movie. And it's like, oh wow." And uh, the, then those, it's like three music videos. And so I just walk out immediately and I realize that he's sitting like in the back row kind uh. of. So he watches me walk out and open the door. Like I see his head turn as I open the door and a bunch of light comes in. I'm like, oh, <laughs> sorry, man, I have to shit. Yeah, no, like literally, dude, look, I respect you too much. I am going to make sure I don't have to pee. Well, it's not even during his movie. It's him introing Stop Making Sense. So I can't say like I'm uh, doing anything like that. But realistically, yeah, man, I'd rather vape in the bathroom than fucking watch a Haim music video any day of the week. So if Paul Thomas Anderson doesn't respect me because of that, then I'm sorry. I I, I really hope I can earn his trust back one of these days. Should have given him like the rock and roll bull hands, like more of a metal fan, Paul. Sorry. Like- <laughs> Just a funny thing to say to him. I don't know. Yeah, you remember that scene in Boogie Nights with the sister Christian? That's a good song. Why don't you do songs like that? <laughs> Why don't you make like an ACTC video? PTA doing like fan music videos for metal. Because <laughs> that's what he does now. It's like he just does these videos for Tom York and for the Haim sisters and uh, uh, Joanna Newsome. And it's like, I, I, I like the fact that he does them as little experiments because there are ways that he can kind of uh, experiment with new formal techniques before yeah. bringing them into his real movies. But I also <laughs> just hate them because it's bad music usually. Uh, and I, it's like, I like Johnny Greenwood's scores for PTA and I like Tom York and Radiohead, but like that anima thing, I remember stinking. Oh, anima was bad. And I didn't really like a moon-shaped pool either. And the fact that, that uh, that's the latest Radiohead album from like oh, six okay. years ago. Oh. PTA yeah, did some videos for it. And I was like, you know, eh, they were they were a very special band to me when I was in high school. But these days, it doesn't really move the needle. Um, but I'm anyway, more of a King of Limbs fan. King of Limbs fan. Yes, I am. <laughs> I think the King <laughs> of too. Limbs is, uh, that's a very out there album. That's like the most forward thinking and uh, it's the most percussive based album they've done. I think it's like, 
you know, I don't, I don't know. They're they're an interesting group. Adding a second drummer there. Have you ever heard of this band Radiohead? Very interesting group out of Britain. <laughs> you can't talk about Radiohead. I've never they listened don't let to you Radiohead talk about album. them before. You've never listened. Damn. No, to I've ne- I'm not like just not just just haven't you, gotten around you to just it. Haven't done it. It's just not. It wasn't your thing at any time in particular. No, like, I was where others would have done it. Yeah, no, into other stuff. Yeah, I was I was a little bit more twee in yeah. like uh, high school. So, does this mean that next week on our next podcast we are going to do a book report on uh, <laughs> you? You're, you're giving me homework. <laughs> Is that what you were fucking doing? Uh, uh, I'll listen to what? Which one? What? What do you tell me? Because I actually i I went back to a couple of them recently, and I think a few of them are still great. Like genuinely, yeah, like, Radiohead's really good. Oh, I like that. Radiohead. No yeah. shit, but it's like the 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 discography I thought was maybe a bit bloated and falls off toward the tail end or whatever. But it's like. Yeah, OK yeah. Computer is still a great record. Like, I'm giving those four bullets or five. Like, OK Computer, In Rainbows, Kid A, uh, In the King of Limbs, those are, those are like, genuine great records, in my opinion. Uh, mm-hmm. And, hey, if you want just some classic, like, 90s alt-rock, throw on the bends. There's some awesome songs on that and much more uh, radio-friendly rock and roll, which is what I like, baby. <laughs> <laughs> I'll report back next week. I feel like people shit on Radiohead nowadays. Maybe well, it's, it's because music's about being cool. Music isn't about yeah. art. Music's about being cool. So it's like, uh, it's the way people are with like, film people are like that to a degree with like Stanley Kubrick probably. For well, sure. I mean, I yeah. feel like Tarantino because, stuff. Yeah, Tarantino. Like, they, like yeah. that thing, yeah. like his reception like comes and goes popularly. With every time he makes a movie. Yeah. He has to remind people that he's good. Yeah. See, Radiohead mm-hmm. kind of fell off, so it's not the same. But uh, yeah. Yeah. I, 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 it's a... Uh, there's a lot of, you know, Redditors, you know, R slash or U slash Kubrick Radiohead 47 or whatever. You know, it's like just because there's annoying people online that like something doesn't mean it's bad art. Uh, you know, if imagine telling your yeah. kid like, uh, hey, daddy, should we watch 2001? Uh, and it's like, you know, son, it's a little Reddit for my taste. Uh, yeah. <laughs> You don't want your kid to get the Kubrick stare. You know what I mean? Exactly. You, want them to... you don't want your kid to get the Fantano stare. <laughs> Fantano stare. Um, <laughs> we're back here on Extended Clip. It is Malcolm in the music. Uh, Malcolm, mm-hmm. anything else you've been listening to lately uh, other than Radiohead, your favorite band? Uh, not. I guess, yeah, because I, I don't really have a movie, so I, I, I'll just talk a, little bit of, talk a little bit of music. I was actually listening to... Um, meet is murder the other day you know everyone's on a little smith's kick you know killer fans and uh you know i kind of it was kind of funny i like when i saw the killer and i was like let me go home and listen to the smiths and i was like you know what i just can't do it right now and i gave it a week i gave it a week and then i'm like okay now this is i don't know i don't know maybe that's just me and my ego but i was like i can't be influenced by this i don't know what that was but um because i enjoy the smiths just too hot off it you know yeah, yeah. I mean, I just had listened to the Smiths for, you know, two hours straight in that movie. So I was like, <laughs> maybe I got my fill there. But uh, yeah, Meat is Murder, which I feel like is not like out, out of all the albums, maybe it was the one I'm like a little the least familiar with. But um, I mean, just really fucking really good and kind of like, I don't know, I feel like the Smiths, uh, I, I maybe some people spend more time than with them with me. I mean, another, hey, another band that people, you know, went to shit on as well in, in a similar style well, mainly because of like what morrissey his transgressions or whatever but um uh yeah i don't know just it, it was just a 
good in ways that I, I don't remember. I always forget like Smiths are like kind of like political or whatever, like anti-consumerism type tip in, mm. in the music sometimes. And like, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I love uh, Morrissey's righteous attitude and the poetic lyrics, you know what I mean? I get righteous sounds like an overly negative word, but I, I just, I mean it in a, like a positive way. I, I don't know. Yeah. But um, Meet is Murder. Um, that song is like scary. Meet is Murder. Yeah. It's great. <laughs> it, it, I, I'm wearing a suicide shirt right now. It's like we're talking about scary music today. You know, Meet is Murder, Frankie Teardrop, some of the spookiest songs out there. Frankie Teardrop's really good. I feel like that song got sold to me like like in a William Castle style. Like, this is the scariest song <laughs> The ever. Frankie Teardrop Challenge. Yeah. And like, I and like I kind of like, when I heard it, I was you know, I'm like, this isn't that scary. You know? You know it's a scary album? Buyer's Market by Peter Sotos. <laughs> Hell, now that's I, <laughs> I, mean, I would say it's more morally wrong than scary. It's, it's scary yeah. if you enjoy it. Uh, yeah, yeah. I remember listening to, to that like when I was like 13 or 14 when I was... <laughs> As previously discussed, looking up like the most, the most fucked, fucked up, up movies, things. yeah, fucked up things of all time on the internet, and uh, one of the only things to truly kind of put you know some fr- fear in my heart was yeah. Buyer's Market. I remember a, a night where I was just kind of couldn't go to sleep because I was thinking of Buyer's Market. So Buyer's that's Market the backstory. <laughs> that would be get Will on. I would. I'd be down to talk some sodas. Honestly, I. <laughs> that, that oh can my do, god. Like, <laughs> Much, but yeah, honestly, I, I I would need help. Yeah, I would need help. Well, okay, I'm gonna do a little spoiler here and say we have a soft plan for a Will Sloan Christmas episode about someone that's not as bad as Peter Soto's, but pretty bad. I'll I'll float this by him. I'll see what I'll see what we're thinking coming be, up on that oh, Christmas because the Peter Soto's, Soto's Christmas episode <laughs> yeah, would be that's, like yeah. <laughs> that's demonic. That yeah. is, we might get banned yeah, from Spotify for that. That's evil. I can't even put clips in. Like I, I can't be researching fucking using audio hijack on some Peter Soto's shit. Like listening to it once is enough. Buyer's Market Deluxe Edition with remixes. Just a thought, a whole Peter Soto's reboot. For it's the like the, the three LP set, but it's like DJ style, oh, like the 12 inch single. So you have like extended club mix on one side, censored version on one side. <laughs> like just putting like house music over the, the, under the interviews. I don't know. You know, there could be something there. Buyer's Market Deluxe Edition. <laughs> buyer's market uh and then in brackets like extended soul <laughs> funk breakdown <Yeah>. remix <laughs> the vici posthumous remix <laughs> he was a good man um jt did you watch anything recently um nope i'll talk about something i listened to okay i uh this is a music I'm, podcast now i, like I mean i mm-hmm. just watched uh the holdovers and walking and talking this week which we have an episode about walking and talking and we've talked about the holdovers like pretty much every week as each one of us has seen it um but i don't know i listened to a lot of eddie arnold the Tennessee playboy of country music fame. He's like one of the Nashville sound guys who's on RCA from like the forties into the seventies. And a dude who was doing a lot of like just really sad, more the pop sort of country. That's sort of like dreamy, like quality, like female backup vocal singers. Like it feels like it, 
It was like recorded in a glass house kind of quality to it, uh, where it's all just like about being sad that your love has left you. There's this one, uh, like, uh, there are two records of his I've been listening to a lot. Uh, One is My World, uh, which is, again, mostly just uh, songs about him being alone. And then The Last Word in Lonesome. And he's a guy who has... uh, great in terms of the like goofy country music albums his are all just him like uh in various uh like just like nice suits with i don't know it's like the old-timey western sort of a tie that's like a black tie that you're like not like a traditional like necktie but you're tying it into like a bow yeah it's like a string bow tie and he's just like posed hybrid between the bow and the bolo yeah yeah and he's just smiling even though he's so sad inside (laughs) The sad clown. Mm-hmm. I mean, we've talked about it before when we did Coal Miner's Daughter, but that classic uh, studio country record album, like the the cover formula, where just like it's usually just a medium close up of the artist smiling on it's a blank so background. Good. <laughs> so good. They just swap out the color each yeah. time. It's just, uh, this one's gonna be blue. All right, we're gonna hold. We're gonna have you hold a prop for this one. <laughs> we're getting creative here. We're gonna pull back the camera a little bit. Make sure we could see her holding that guitar. <laughs> That should be like everyone's debut album should like it be required. That should be the the album picture. It's just a photo of yourself. Or yeah, the band, just a, guess, just a nice photo. You got to dress yeah. up a little bit. Yeah, because it's like it's reveal. It's like kind of like it's kind of like the perfect album cover in a way. Like you know what I mean? Like there are like cool album covers, but it's like this is it's a, this this is really like this is who's delivering this music to you. You know what <laughs> I mean? Reckon with that. Yeah. What about uh, you, Eddie? Have you been either watching or listening to anything this week? You know, I am going to go in between on that because okay. just Ooh. now I... Smelling anything? <laughs> well, I have been smelling quite a bit. I can smell you from here, buddy. Oh! Uh, no, just before JT came over, I uh, I s- took, a, took a gander at Philippe Garel's The Inner Scar, which almost doubles as a... Uh, album film for Nico's Desert Shore. Oh uh, yeah, I've seen this. Yeah, Nico is the star of this film, uh, and not our friend Nico, but no, of course. Nico of uh, the Velvet Underground <laughs> and Nico fame, the uh, the Chanteuse, if you will. Uh, I say that because I don't know the German name for a girl singer, but I like the the name Chanteuse. <laughs> uh, but anyway, uh, th- this is a kind of surreal movie about images themselves and their relationship i think with painting and other visual mediums because each song is basically one long take uh the the compositions are very kind of uh rigid uh with very rigid camera movement and there a lot of them are just like a person walking and it's all about the the background changing behind them or the person going through a background or something like that uh it is it sounds like it could be boring but it really isn't because Nico in this is like her screen presence is very strange and off-putting and you know obviously her vocals are very disaffected and sound different than her voice does uh, in the movie and her acting but it's so interesting because it's just sparse film in terms of set design and everything it's just like these handful of outdoor locations in the desert yeah uh, i mean if you know the nico album desert shore like look at the cover 
that's about uh, a median image from this movie. Uh, it's just like her and a horse and a little boy. And you kind of make what you will of the images symbolically. Uh, it, it's a gorgeous film. It's trance-inducing. And I think it's like... A, a sign of what could have been with the collaboration between filmmakers and musicians in the mid 20th century. This is like 1971 or something like that. And I don't know, there, there, there's a really nice little pocket of kind of avant-garde and art house filmmakers and the more pushing the boundaries, cutting edge, uh, artistic rock musicians of the 60s and 70s as well. You have Jonas Makis shooting the Velvet Underground stuff and, you know, uh, all, all these crossovers like that. So I think the the Nico and uh, Garel collab here is a very, it's like a very breezy art house movie. It's like very slow, but it's 60 minutes. It's a little longer than the record. And it really does feel like a nap. Uh, LP length or featurette length music video in the best way possible. It's a, it's a high recommend for me. I, I liked it quite a bit. You know, I, I, I'm kind of familiar with Carell's work, but I was looking through the movies I've seen and I realized I've kind of uh, watched a lot of more of his recent movies. You know, the earliest one I've seen coming from the nineties and I'm interested to see his early work because it seems kind of like his early work is very like avant-garde, mm-hmm. you know, non-narrative, you know yeah. what I mean? Kind of a very, very art house. And then kind of... Um, he goes more dialogue movies. heavy, right? Later on? Yeah. Yeah. Like the movies, the movies I've... Like the, the ones in the 2010s are like, um, you know, like kind of very conversational, very... I've heard you know, Romare I mean? as a comp. Yeah, exactly. Like kind of like your idea of like kind of like a, what a like a French conversational film would be. But I feel like they're very well made and like he has visual panache. But like kind of the ones I've seen earlier, it kind of seems like the movies kind of deal with kind of like the fallout of living like uh, like making like art house movies or like kind of living on like the artistic fringes. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And kind of like the pain that could kind of come with that or kind of like the the difficult lifestyles that could kind of come with that. So I'd be very, I, I need to check out his earlier work because it, it honestly seems to give richer meaning to his work later. But I, you know, that's pretty common, but it seems like especially so in this case. And I gotta say the uh, that Desert Shore record, I never really was into it until earlier this year. I actually listened to it like I gave it a real listen for the first time. Uh, I think when I was driving over uh, from the West Coast, and mm-hmm. it is pretty much a John Cale record uh, with Nico. Like the, the instrumentation is all him. The personnel is like Nico vocals, harmonium, John Cale, all other instruments except (laughs) trumpet. (laughs) Uh, So if if you're looking for John Cale cinema, uh, desert shore is right there. I think he may have been uh, looking a little too ghastly to appear in the (laughs) film at that time. This is when he was really cranking the speed, I think, but uh, yeah, his, his production work for Nico is really interesting, and uh, you know it, it's all part of the story of the Velvet Underground. Even if she's not a full fledged member, uh, I, I think if you're following down those rabbit holes, Desert Shore and uh, the film The Inner Scar are definitely a good place to go. If you're looking for more Garel like that, I, I think his first feature or another one he made around that time, La Relevatur, uh, I think it's like from 68. That one's really good too, but I liked this one better. Uh, that one was black and white, I believe, uh, and really visually stunning. But this one, I feel like, just put me in a trance for 60 minutes. It was beautiful. 
Email time. Let's do it. Let's. Uh, I was going to say that's it, but we, we've had this email for a couple weeks and haven't gotten to it. Email time, extendedclippodcast at gmail.com is where you can always reach us. This one comes from Howard. It says, same man, different email. Hey, guys, uh, since you are all talking about Woody Allen. Okay, so this is from a couple uh, weeks ago. Uh, is, oh, wait, no, this episode hasn't come out. Yeah, no. Perfect. Woody, ah, yes. Is that next episode? This is a teaser. This is a teaser, yeah. <laughs> uh, hey, guys, since you are all going to talk about Woody Allen, who has worked in pretty much all of the popular American aspect ratios, I thought I would ask some things related. What are the best shot slash looking films in the 137 or Academy aspect ratio? Who are the cinematographers or directors that really took advantage of that frame? In your opinion, are the benefits from this size uh, or are there benefits from this size that other formats just don't have? Why do you think mainstream audiences were so thoroughly ready to kick it at a curb, kick it to the curb at a certain point? Anyway, love the show and I'm counting my pennies to see if a Patreon sub is in the cards. Have a great day. Well, Howard, I will answer your question when you donate. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Trey might not hear this. Yeah. No, this is a main feed episode. Um, oh, okay. But anyway, the the aspect ratio thing. Okay, so it changes. Not the public didn't say, "Oh, fuck yeah. four three. I feel like it's the, mostly just the, the industry the, yeah. changed because of television. The rise of television, uh, you know, made the film studios react and try to do things that weren't available to be. Uh, or weren't able to be accomplished on television. So uh, Technicolor becomes a huge thing. And, you know, they, they start doing scope and even just like VistaVision and the, you know, wider aspect ratios that you can watch in a theater, but you can't watch on your TV uh, because they were running movies on TV too. It's like you got to really bring the splendor to make people not want it. And then at that point, you kind of had the freedom to do whatever aspect ratio you wanted. And uh, yeah, by the 70s, I think... You know, it just seemed old hat or even by the 60s, it just seemed old hat. And people were like, well, we have these other ones and we kind of associate four three with television. And it took a while for American audiences to embrace it again. But uh, a lot of, you know, a lot of independent filmmakers were using it in like the late 80s and 90s. And with the advent of video, it comes back in a major way. Um, when I think about four three though, the best uses of it are all classic Hollywood yeah. pre widescreen. It's all like you know Ford and Hawks and all that good stuff. Yeah, like Toland, like they like yeah, in terms Toland, of specific yeah. cinematographers. Like yeah, no, that's I I, I had a similar response to the question because it's just like yeah, I do like when contemporary directors do things uh, in the ratio. Like anytime like. Uh, Wes Anderson busted out for a little bit. Like, uh, is there a little bit of it in? Yeah, in Grand Budapest. So, uh, like, yeah, 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 yeah. And yeah. Uh, I would say most of it in Grand yeah. Budapest. Yeah. So I do like it used, but again, sometimes, like, I feel like in terms of that realm of like quote unquote American indie stuff, there's a lot of like aspect ratio play recently, <laughs> and I don't know. I think sometimes it's just kind of like pointless and flashy or like they're not using it to like accomplish yeah. like the difference like i don't know they're not framing for it they're just like oh this is like a fun way to change things up and so i feel like i don't know using it now i feel like you have to either it's like the format of like using like an older like digital like camera or something that's like a mini i mean i guess they not necessarily but um yeah i don't know i feel like it needs to be purposeful now 
like yeah yeah it became a very trendy thing to go narrower in the last like 10 years of american quote-unquote independent or i guess alternative cinema mm-hmm. a24 yeah like i saw the trailer for like salt burn or whatever and i haven't seen it so i can't i can't go too in on it but it is like i don't see any reason why this movie should be shot in 4-3 other than it seems like a trendy thing to do amongst you know alternative directors like eddie said but yeah i, I like it is like since like in the 30s and 40s, like all the best, you know, 4-3 was the default. So it's kind of like all the great directors from back then that we praise constantly on the show are like my favorite. Like I think Hawks specifically comes to mind yeah. and like how you would frame people like specifically or staging, I guess, is like where how actors would stand when they talk to each other. And I feel like with 4-3, like especially, I don't know, like a, a two shot, especially or kind of like. I feel like it's it's easier just to like the frames could end up looking a little bit more neater and a little less, um, you know, it's just because there's less negative space usually with four yeah. three. You know, no, the, like, the, you the medium two shot in four three, uh, especially the way Hawks and others did it, that was pretty much industry standard. Is like the sh- the defining shot of the classic Hollywood aesthetic that doesn't exist anymore and the use of the aspect ratio. No one uses it for that anymore. People use it for single shots. They they Instagramified the narrower aspect yeah. ratio. That's true. Uh, yeah. And it's not really used for the same purposes. I think Dave Care maybe or... No, David Bordwell has a good thing about the two-shot, uh, like the medium focal length two-shot in uh, classic Hollywood cinema. And yeah, it's just like the way the trends work. It doesn't really happen anymore. But then... TV started adapting that, and as TV got more cinematic, it's like, oh, there are points where it's like, oh, late 90s, early 2000s, uh, hour dramas or even comedies would have, like, really, you know, they're shot on film and in 4.3, framed for 4.3. It's like, oh, they're kind of, you know, using this in an interesting classical yeah, no, type they've really way. Respond- like, uh, like, some shows, like, I would say yeah, Frasier sometimes. Yeah, is like Frasier, The X-Files, Really responsible whatever. framing like, in that. Yeah, it's all, it's all just, like, it's industry standard, really. But you just don't see it in movies because uh, when you're using 4.3 for a quote-unquote artistic choice rather than practicality, uh, it always stands out as such. And very few people are able to make it work. I think Kelly Reichardt was good at it, and I think she went back to a wider frame for showing up, but uh, the, the, I think the earlier Kelly Reichert movies are in like one six six or four three, and also Europeans they just standard everything was one six six over there when it was one eight five over here. Eh, what the fuck? I don't know. I don't know what that means. <laughs> <Yeah>. But <laughs> I, I have to say, when I saw First Reformed in twenty seventeen, the four three was pretty striking to me. Yeah, yeah. But it, it is. It is. Um, I have to say, Schrader uses it said- well because that's all of his influences used that frame. Totally. Yeah, then it checks out, you know, but like, even what you said, kind of like how 4.3 is used now, like, I feel like even like First Reformed has that, you know, maybe Instagram aesthetics too harsh, but it is like that movie's very, you know, insular and about like, you know, Ethan Hawke's, you know, um, it does use that 4.3 frame to like isolate him heavy like that. So I don't know. I thought that was a good point that had me thinking of, yeah, like any, any modern 4.3, it's kind of like, kind of almost used to like maybe even alienate you a little bit or something like, like I think of uh, uh post tenebrous Lux, the Carlos Ray goddess movie. Um, very impressive four three visuals, but yeah, it's just, it it's, it's very just abstract and alienating. Whereas like the classic Hawks two shot 
in four three. It's like there's nothing cozier than that. So it's just it, it's kind of uh, it's really become an art house thing, I guess, over the year. You know, it's not. Well, a, it's also a blockbuster yeah. thing because of IMAX. The yeah. IMAX oh, ratio yeah. being that like near four three, like one point five or whatever it is. Uh, you know the the way that you see screenshots of the the DCP file or whatever for Dune and IMAX, and it's like, oh my god. The framing on that is completely different than the scope framing on HBO, uh, and I think it's used well sometimes, but also, I don't want to say a crutch, but it's almost a signifier, like we're going to the big aspect ratio and you're seeing the big landscape, you know? Uh, but the people who use it well, use it well. I, I thought I thought the, uh, the IMAX work in Dune was quite spectacular. Yeah. So that is it for aspect ratio talk. If you have uh, anything to ask us about, like uh, subtitle file encodings or <laughs> reformatting your hard drive, or we honestly probably stuff. have we have minutes on the we probably yeah, do yeah. No, have rich discussions around those on, topics uh, on hard drive uh, partitioning. You know, that's a, uh, <laughs> they, they call they don't call me the partitioner for nothing. <laughs> you had to earn that name I had to earn it I had to earn it Two terabytes for uh, movies Two terabytes for podcast stuff You know Who knows And uh, who knows what the other two terabytes are for <laughs> Who makes a six terabyte hard drive It's, it's too big No you go four you go eight Come on <laughs> I, I think I agree what I you, agree basically what you new, it Was your first day on the geek squad <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's his first day at the Geek Squad, so you know what that means. He has to, uh, he has to sit in the backseat of the Geek Squad mobile. <laughs> his first day on the Geek Squad, uh, man, he's on child pornography hard drive duty. <laughs> <laughs> Goodbye, everybody. <laughs>